0: Let's uh, let's thank God, dear Lord. We're grateful for time in Your Word, Anytime time we have a chance to examine it and and unearth the amazing things You have said over many millennia. Thank you again for this this morning in Your Son's name, Amen. When you when you realize what you're looking at is three millennia old, 3,000 years old. We were singing that hymn this morning that was almost two millennia old. Begin to feel a little bit, uh, was the vortex of infinite perspective uh, out of Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide, be to realize you are but a vapor. The presumptions we have about our own lives and sometimes you can get so Bible in your thinking, and I, I, I grew up in church, so, so Bible that you don't even see David. We have two Psalms of David this morning, the third and the fourth. David was one of the great, my father was going on about this at dinner the other week, about how David, one of the great poets, one of the great soldiers, that people don't realize that you're looking at someone at 1000 BC whose military exploits were legend and he was sitting down and writing this poetry in the midst of it Shakespeare was a great poet but he wasn't a great soldier Wellington was a great soldier, wasn't a great poet Alexander the Great wasn't a great poet you, the stuff you read doesn't show the death of, of other great characters in history. David was just a, a, a remarkable man. The first psalm, Psalm 3, it says at the top, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, I, I didn't. I'm not claiming that because it's Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 that they are supposed to track like this on each other, but they do for our purposes this morning. And I don't know how much of that was in the arrangement of the... um, in the arrangement of the people who put the Psalms together. I have an extended portion of 2 Samuel on the left-hand side, because when it says, when he fled from Absalom, his son, you have to understand... That that's a very tidy way of saying he was having a really bad day. A worse day than you can imagine having. You've had bad days, no doubt. Maybe even major calamities. David was having a day way up there. Absalom, his son, had revolted against him. And I had the section I have out of Second Samuel sixteen. is just to give you, a, just to give you a sense. When the king, this is just as they're fleeing from Jerusalem to get away from Absalom, King David came to Bahurim, and there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, son of Girah. And as he came, he cursed continually. You, yeah, got the picture? Guy coming out of his house. Shaking his fist, cursing nonstop. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men, were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Begone, be gone, you man of blood, you worthless fellow. Sounds like the uh, French in the castle and holy grail your mother was a hamster and your father smells of elderberry you worthless fellow the Lord has avenged upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom see your ruin is on you for you are a man of blood well, this is a crotchety guy. I sort of picture him sort of in a Gabby Hayes, crotchety, just bad, bad attitude normally. And here's, a, here's the guy he hates the most because he's from a town of Saul and David took Saul's place. So he's taken this opportunity of David's calamity to heap it up, throw rocks at him, curse him, yell names at him. But David's not alone. He's got his mighty men with him. He's just not got enough mighty men. And Abishai, one of his nephews, with Joab and um, what's his name Abishai is one of those guys one of those guys who says I'm on David's side and I don't take any of this he says the son of Zariah said to the king one of my favorite verses why should this dead dog curse the lord my king let me go over and take off his head well direct problem solver he's a problem solver he knows how to put these things together, work things out, settle things. Blessed are the peacemakers. (laughs) But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me to death. David has a bad day. Run out of town by his own son, cursed by various people. Shimei shows up later. I won't spoil the story. Take a read of Samuel find out what happens. But David's posture in this, this is what's intriguing. You know David has his bad moments. He falls morally. He, he He is a man of blood. He's not allowed to build the temple because he is so violent. Killed so many people when the chicks were singing about and David, his tens of thousands. They weren't kidding. Now, just knowing that, knowing that this is a very dark time in history, this is the time of the fall of Troy, a couple hundred years after the fall of Troy, this go champion warfare, uh, city states with small cities and not very sound walls and a lot of death, short life spans. We have first world problems, you know. We, didn't have the number of espresso shots put into our coffee that we had requested and I am really annoyed. We went to see Ket Moe at the Beasley last night, a blues artist. Really good show. He's a blues artist, so he thinks, you know, you, you get fired, your truck breaks down, your woman walks out on you. Your dog dies. I mean, in his song, actually, his dog did something on the carpet. But his wife, his woman, had left him prior. We're all facing, even though Evan says, well, yeah, David had it worse. Or Jesus on the cross had it worse. You get a little tired of that, right? The pastor always says, I can find somebody who had it worse. Somebody in Auschwitz. And so you say, okay, am I supposed to feel better because somebody had it worse? Well, maybe we can learn, as long as we admit that David had it worse, just like when Christ, it says in 1 Peter 3, that Christ was our example in his suffering, that we should have an example, that we should follow in his steps. When we see these examples of tough times, when we see it rendered out in the psalm, how David deals with it, at least, even if our times aren't as tough, they are tough to us. They're difficult. They, we, we're on our knees praying about it because we don't like it. Verse one. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of me, there is no help for him in God. I like the fact that David is saying this in a psalm to God. Already, there's sort of a latent faith that is just pre-present in David. That if people, it's not like someone says to you, "There's no help for you in God," and you sit back in a sort of godless neutrality, wondering if there is help for you in God. David's way ahead of you. He's already talking to God. Oh Lord. This is what they're saying about me. They say there's no hope for him in God. Then it says, Selah. You've seen that in the Psalms, in Habakkuk. It occurs one I read seventy times in the Psalms. We don't know why it's there, really. Um, we think it's a choral instruction. We don't know if it was added many, many, many centuries later as a marginalia, and then kept in there because of textual reasons. But that it was the word means uh, lift up, and they think it was an instruction either to the band. The musicians to uh, go nuts on the on the music, and that in that gap or in that interim, or voices. But it's like that that whatever the lifting up is, we know what lifting up feels. You know when certain. Parts the Hallelujah Chorus and handles Messiah, the fourth movement in Beethoven's Ninth, when things get lifted up. What's that, uh, Carmina Burana? Um, they split what? Or uh, would they always play it in commercials? Dun, 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 dun. Okay, sing along, sing along. <laughs> y- you know what that feels like, right? It is, it, you feel, you feel the being lifted up, being encouraged, being musically moved along that, along that path. This, there's instruction, we think, not sure, but we think in the margins of these two psalms, two of them one after another, not all psalms have this, to lift things up, at least want to have you think in terms of that as you face any kind of disappointment. David didn't know how many his foes were and he had a posse himself of mighty men that he had to march out of Jerusalem, his capital city, which he had taken by his armed will from the Jebusites, he had to march out and leave because his son, insult of insults, was pursuing him. It's not surprising that people look at your calamity and, just like the friends of Job. You had to have done something wrong. God's not on your side. David has a different approach. But thou, O Lord, verse 3, art a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. That's what made me think about at least pointing out the selah, lifting up. God is the lifter of David's head. He is David's shield. He is David's glory. I I put in the margins that he is your triumph. That is your, your sense of confidence. He is. Even though you're on the run. Even though tools like Shimei are throwing rocks at you and cursing you, his head is lifted up. Did you see his response to Shimei? Maybe the Lord will look upon my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. David is different than us. No, David has his failings. You know, he said, well, David didn't, you know, I never ran around on my 48 wives. Yeah, David had some sins and some problems, but he was, at some point, to some degree, the writer of much of your Bible. And to some degree, that some way, you have to accept a man after the Lord's heart. And you see it Here. Because he knows, he knows where his God is. He is already in prayer about the fact that things have gone completely south on him. Everything's sideways. I don't know which end is up. Lord, this is what they're saying about me. But you are my shield, my glory, my triumph, my confidence. I lie down down and sleep excuse me, verse 4, I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, for the Lord sustains me. I am not afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. He answers the question, how many are my foes right there? Because it doesn't really matter how many are my foes, because they have ten thousand are against me. I don't care. This is the example I would want you to pull out. If you go through a bad hair day or a real calamity we've been praying for various people that have cancer people that are facing death you could be that person's family member, you could be that person. Now what? What do you do? The dipstick that I want you to run into you here on Psalm 3 is is your have you stepped out of yourself with such a statement of God? God is my shield, my glory my lifting up He answers me He sustains me I don't, I'm not afraid of 10,000 people, though I am currently running away from tens of thousands of people. I'm not afraid of them. And then his request is made, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. But he's the kind of person God listens to, because look at what he just said. Too often, people pray to find out if they believe. Well, I prayed, and nothing happened. Were you one of those people who prayed with this belief about your God, that you went to your God because he was this? You didn't go to your God to find out if he was this, I'm just testing you at this point, O oh Lord, to find out if you're my shield, my glory, my lifting up. David's already in there amongst it. You are this. You sustain me. You speak to me. You are this. Now, now, <coughs> <laughs> the Bible, Bible language, sometimes fails to pick up on something. Look at the next phrase: "Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, for Thou dost smite all my enemies on the cheek; Thou dost break the teeth of the wicked." What did he really just say? You're the God who punches people in the face and knocks their teeth down their throat. It's a metaphor. But that's what he said. That's what David, perhaps Shimei was right. You are a man of blood. David, for him, he goes, you are my God. You sustain me. You're the kind of God that's going to take my enemies and punch them in the face. And that just the phrasing of that sounds so good. You are the God who knocks their teeth down their throat. Thank you, Jesus. It's what he believed. What, you might have a metaphor too because what do you think it says he strikes them on the cheek did you think God was the kind of God who would get into some hissy fight in a bar and smack somebody with an open palm this is the kind of thing that breaks the teeth of the wicked this is a knuckle sandwich David is pleased that his God is this way Because deliverance belongs to the Lord. Now, as you go to prayer, as you, as you, as you face difficulties, we go to prayer, you, you got two things. With, with God, you're, you're praying along two lines, basically. You are praying prayers of thanksgiving, because God has done so many wonderful things for you. You live in an affluent world, and you, you have family that loves you, and you can pay your rent. The other side is, things are going rough. You live in Syringatria Park, okay? And so you have anxieties. You take your anxieties to God. You have bad days. Prayers to God are prayers to be answered are going to be prayers of faith. And you've got to stop and say, am I, like David, able to just step into this day that's going badly already telling God dear Lord it's going badly everybody's set against me they say they're not going to help me but I know you're this kind of God and I can for the next few minutes declare how great my God is to my God not in a theological discussion where you're trying to prove to somebody else you'd pass the catechism test but to God can you declare his greatness you don't have to have the metaphor of being, you know, punching people out if you're not really that violent. What is your metaphor? What do you speak of in terms of God? Because you are, you, he is looking for faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God, Right? What it says in James, that passage, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, how can he expect to receive anything from God? You know know that, that portion. You have to ask in faith with no doubting. What's your faith? What do you believe? If you're going to have a hard day, did your faith already start in a hole because you're not going to pray except to find out if God is good? And then he won't be because you didn't pray in faith. You didn't have a view of him. You did not come before his throne honoring him at all. If deliverance belongs to the Lord, you might want to not be insulting when you walk into his courtroom. Now, when he says deliverance belongs to the Lord, now naturally we have in every circumstance we face that is bad, we have hopes that the badness of it, I have cancer, the cancer will stop. I have a headache, the headache will stop. Whatever the degree, um, people don't like me, how can that stop? Well, people would start to like me, right? Go get your hopes up. We want that, deli- naturally we think if we see the problems, we want the deliverance to solve the problems. But if deliverance belongs to the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, is his deliverance the kind of thing that we're expecting? Is the deliverance he gives the kind of thing we're expecting? My mother used to tell me that She always could work out for God when we were in need, which was frequently, and we'd be praying that God would meet the need. My mother would then spend her spare time writing plot lines for God to follow to solve the need. And parts of the plot line would just not come through. Jesus didn't seem to think my mother was a great writer when it came to what narrative would he use he always provided it always surprised her we don't sometimes when we give something to God be anxious over nothing but with prayers and supplications with thanksgiving make your needs known to God you're just supposed to feel the peace of having done so God takes on the deliverance what is he delivering you from Sometimes our, you know, our eye goes to all the people that don't like us and everything that made the problem bad and the sickness that I have, whatever it is, you know, tally up your calamity, bring it before God. Answer me. This is Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my right Thou hast given me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Sounds like David's got a lot of these Psalms, folks. He's like a Russian. You know, it's like everything's bad all the time. People don't like me. I'm getting chased. It's another one of those Psalms. He's saying, people don't think very highly of David. They believe all the wrong things vain words, look after lives. It's not going well for David. So he's taking this before God. If deliverance belongs to the Lord, what belongs to you? What's your part of the prayer? We already mentioned the faith you have that seems to supervene this whole, in this whole situation that David just believes that God is this way. He's not finding out. He's already believing. The second part, verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Huh? Deliverance belongs to the Lord. What belongs to you? Godliness and faith. So your efforts, as you look at your, you look at two things. You look at your life and you look at your prayer. Are they expressing confidence in him? Because faith, what is it? the conviction of things hopeful, the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Are you assured? Are you convinced? Do you speak in terms of that convincing? There's no way God is going to do something otherwise. If you ever get a chance to read Lewis's essay on obstinacy and belief, it's very good. Very good about why Christians are so obstinately believing. And it seems to be against all the facts against all the evidence, why do Christians obstinately believe? We know him. It is not a belief in God. It's a belief in this God. Because we know what this God is like. And we would, we would not think of not trusting him. Would you? Think of not trusting him? you still trying to figure out in your prayers? Whether this dipstick is going to bring up the kind of God you want? or have you already come to believe in him god hears david when he calls because he set the godly apart for himself sort of that just exists that's not waiting to exist till after all the problems are solved lord if you if you give me a birthday party and you heal my cancer and you heal my aunt betty's cancer and i and i nothing bad is in my life then I will praise you, O Lord. Then I'll believe. So if people are not thinking correctly about this, they're turning against the godly, and the godly are turning to God because they know their God hears them, as he says in Peter, quoting Psalms, I believe, at one point, was the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. That's out of Psalm 34. Are you, I mean, David was convinced of it. Peter, quoting it, was convinced of it. If I want this thing to work, I mean, if if, bear with me, if you were in some cult, and in that cult, the cult leader, myself, was able to prove to you that killing two hamsters, one black, one tan or model, has to be that, your prayers would be absolutely answered but it has to be a black one and a mottled one. You have to kill them with your bare hands. And I prove it to you. Oh, my gosh. You're going to be out there shopping for black hamsters and mottled hamsters and your bedroom's going to be awash in hamster blood because you're going to do the dumbest and the silliest little incantational thing that you can figure out to get to, as one awful tract I once read by some awful Christian teacher. How to write your own ticket with God. That was the name of the tract. How you could force God to act on your prayer. As we look at prayer in the scripture, as we look at the Lord in this situation, we look at David in this situation, really what he's given you to do is believe and act in a way that a believer in the living God would act. Look at how he described it, verse 4. Be angry, but sin not. That's out of, it's not out of Ephesians, that's quoted in Ephesians. Be angry and sin not. Commune with your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I want you to, say so it's, it's a list of things. It seems like there's a disconnect to them. But it's really a personal godliness being laid out. He didn't just sort of jump the rails and start talking about something entirely different. He wants people that have a moral moral control on their feelings. Be angry but sin not. Everybody said, well, no problem being angry. <laughs> Got that down. Well, it's the sin not portion. Oh, we, know what it, we, we know what it means. It's like saying lust, but sin not. Well, how do I do that? Well, only for your wife. Angry, but sin not. Do you have the moral constraint over your feelings? Your feelings are central to you. Are you constrained in it? But then it says, commune with your own hearts on your beds. How much time do you give to thinking about who you are and what you're up to? And be silent. Quit quit talking. Shut? It's one of our catechism answers. What's the chief end of man? To shut the heck up. Be silent. Draw near to listen is better, better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Being quiet, considering your life on your bed, thoughtfully, without filling the air with more of your speech, talking yourself into other things. There's an integrity with your own being that you have to find offer right sacrifices. I have interpreted this, since we don't do sacrifices here at All Souls Christian, either black hamsters or mottled hamsters, that you do what you're told the way you're told to do it. Not by me, not by the church authorities, because we're looking to become the godly. Remember that your, your portion, the deliverance, belongs to the Lord. You took a request to Him, not to find out, but to ask Him for something. You're not commanding Him to do anything. You're not insisting that He do anything. You're asking Him. That's the nature of a request. That's what the word prayer means. It means request, and it belongs to Him. Once I give it to Him, it belongs to Him. Now what's mine? Godliness and faith. So what do I have to do to be godly? What do I have to do? Well, watch over your moral extensions of your feelings. Have some integrity. Be able to be quiet. Do the right things the right way. And put your trust in the Lord. You're doing those things because you believe him. Do you believe him when he says stuff? What's your, what's your level of belief capabilities when you face the scriptures? Is some of it just feels still, still a little hard for you to. I don't know if I believe that. Well, enjoy your prayers. God is in his heaven. Looking down, saying, you know. I was a self-existent, uncreated creator. I made all this, and I made it this way, and then I expressed in a rational book through a series of prophets and apostles my insights onto that, and I think that's a pretty nice thing to have done. And some sophomore at the University of Idaho is saying they don't know if they really believe this portion. And then they want to ask me to cure Aunt Betty's cancer. Enjoy the prayer. You're not looking for God. You're looking for an arrangement you want to make. You can have everything exactly the way you want it, and bad things don't happen to you. You believe God. Put your trust in the Lord. Verse 6, there are many who say, quote, Oh, that we may see some good. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. Because some people don't think that deliverance from the Lord happens unless deliverance from the circumstance they face happens. Right? It like... She died. I prayed for Aunt Betty. She died anyway. There is no God. Or he is not good. Or how can God let this? I had a question the other day from someone. A person who had been raised in a Christian home and they were dealing with people who had had awful lives. And How come? How, it's so unfair. Why did I get this life that they didn't? You didn't exist before your life. You didn't get issued this life. It's amazing how we start blaming God for everything. Instead of crediting godly parents for giving a good life to their children and blaming evil parents for giving a bad life to their children. Nobody got anything they deserved or didn't deserve. It wasn't an issuance that your soul and their soul existed before the foundation of the world. They popped you in that family just to be mean and not mean. You were made by this situation. But I, I people are always looking, not at their own faith, not at their own acceptance, but whether or not they accept God. Not whether God accepts them. He has set apart the godly for himself. And we're wondering if we're going to set apart God for ourselves. Has he really done everything that I think a god should do? I think gods who act like that, you know, Jer- you know Jericho and stuff. I think gods who act like that, that's just, that's just demonic, that's just wicked. I think gods who don't adjust their moral concerns for the state of the age of the zeitgeist of our time that God is unforgivable. We're, we're standing around like we're setting apart the gods the, the, the hubris is, is, is pretty amazing God has set apart the godly for himself God listens to your faith, it's a matter of whether my faith pleases him for without faith, it is impossible to please him. I should be concerned with whether I please him if I'm going to bring Aunt Betty's cancer to him. If I'm going to bring my problems to the Lord. If I'm going to look at, he says, how many are my foes, it's a bit of bad day. And trusting you for deliverance, Lord, I have to accept that he had taken deliverance into his hands and measured me and measured out deliverance the way deliverance is for him. But look, Man has deliverance already written up like my mother did. Lord, I'm praying that you will provide enough money to feed my family. That's what she'd pray. I need to go to Safeway. And uh, I was going to buy some goldmita cheese and some noodles. We're going to make macaroni and cheese. And it would be great if in the mail today there was a check supporting our ministry. That's how she was thinking it was always Velveeta cheese. And, but that's all we ate. And I love it. But it didn't come in the mail that day. It didn't come in the mail that day. Can you imagine? Bessie Wilson, she had prayed with Jim Wilson, two eminent Christians surrounded by future pastors, small children, with our little chubby hands folded, praying, Lord, feed us this day our daily Velveeta. (laughs) If only God would provide a check in the mail today. Well, wonderful things happened. The check didn't come in the mail. But other things did happen. Oh, yeah, other things did happen. But the problem was solved. Somebody, um, who uh, it was The Franciscos. The Franciscos was a family, never had kids. And uh, um, they would just show up sort of like magical beings every so often with many, many bags of groceries and just bring them into our house. And the key thing was scooter pies. They had boxes of Scooter... You know what Scooter Pies are? Okay, some of you are not. Some of you don't realize. There's not a digital version of these for you uh, young people. They're bad for you. God bless them. But we have plans how the problem's going to be solved. If Aunt Betty isn't cured of the cancer, the problem's not solved, Oh Lord. If the check didn't come in the mail, the problem's not solved, O Lord. Well, is God, does deliverance belong to him, or does it belong to you? Do you write it out for him? Those who say, oh, that we might see some good. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. And then, look what it says in red, right below that. Thou hast put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He's having a bad day. Life's not good for David in this circumstance. People are not speaking well, and people are telling lies about him. He's in distress. He's praying to God because of that distress. He's given deliverance to God. He has accepted God as looking at him for his faith and his confidence in him and his godliness. And he knows that in that deliverance, what, is, what did I think needed to happen? If only the grain and the wine abounded, we'd all feel better, right? It'd be a party. We'd all feel better. Oh, you really actually, you want to feel better. And David found out that God could put more joy in his heart than the circumstances changing could resolve. Do you think that? How do you do? You even have a means of measurement? I was reading a friend of mine. So you know Ron Huggins. Some of you, he's uh, on sabbatical at university in Austria. He's a he was a professor of theology at some seminary in Kansas City, I think. Just lost his job while he was on sabbatical. They let him know. Uh, you don't have a job anymore. So he's standing in the rain, he said in Vienna, Austria. I mean, it just gets, you say, oh, this is kind of sad. Ron, you're over in Austria, in the rain, and you just lost your job. And he wrote, suddenly I realized, I didn't have to go back to that job. And I realized I was happy standing in the rain in Austria without having to go back to the job. Didn't even know he was going to get a job. Didn't know how he was going to get a job. Do you have ways of measuring what's going on just in you? Just not because of your circumstances. You're not just a child of, you know, ring the bell and the dog for Pavlov salivates. Are you that person? Oh, if you scratch him behind the ears they kick their leg. Is that who you are? Only if the circumstance changes? But your God's got deliverance out there that has this kind of power to put joy in you, running from your son, running from your enemies, having everybody against you having the worst day possible. And because you gave deliverance to him and you believed him, and you obeyed him like you believed him, God's deliverance could miss that point entirely. Didn't fix Aunt Betty. God's deliverance didn't get you the job. God's deliverance might not have gotten you but a few more years on the run from King's Hall. And in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For thou alone, O Lord, makest me dwell in safety. What do you even want? You want everything to go well so you'll have peace. So when things don't go well, you think you'll never have peace. And if God doesn't fix those things and give you wine and grain, fix Aunt Betty, get you a job, make people like you, How can I ever be happy? If I don't have enough money, how could I ever be happy? The Christian system doesn't think that way. Our Christian God does not function that way. His deliverance is to bring things to you, especially in the new covenant, where He writes Himself on our hearts, where we rejoice in knowing the living God. What is the help you have from God? What are you expecting? Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. Help us pray wisely, faithfully, obediently, for deliverance is yours. In your Son's name, amen.